0: Unmarketable talent. As some of you might know, I'm originally from St. Louis, which means that I grew up a St. Louis Rams fan. And if you were a St. Louis Rams fan between 2007 and 2011, the worst five year stretch of any pro football team in history, you started to look forward to the college draft process pretty early on in the season started dreaming of your team taking the next diamond in the rough from, you know, no-name State University and, you know, finally winning some games for a change. Commissioner would walk up to the podium, you know, to announce that franchise-altering pick. He'd say, you know, with the first pick, the Rams select Alex Barron, Jason Smith, Greg Robinson. Y'all don't know who any of those people are. I suppose they did change the trajectory of the franchise because the team got progressively worse until the owner moved the team to Los Angeles. But then on top of that, uh, on top of looking forward to the next season before this season even started, my dad and I, we used to watch uh, Sunday Night Football every week. And on that broadcast specifically, you know, the players' heads would pop up when they were introducing the starting lineup and they would uh, say their name and where they went to school. Patrick Mahomes, Texas Tech, Travis Kelsey, Cincinnati, Nick Bolton, Mizzou. And then when that part came on, my dad and I, we would always compete to see who could uh, name more schools and who could say them faster. And so when I sat down to start studying this passage this week, those Sunday night football intros were just kind of rattling around in my head. It's almost like Matthew is introducing the starting lineup of Jesus' disciples, Right? I just can't help but imagine they pop up at the bottom of my Bible, Simon Peter, Capernaum, James, the son of Zebedee, Galilee, Philip, Bethsaida. And it's almost perfect because, you know, there's 11 football players on the field, 12 disciples, so close. This morning, uh, I want us to take a closer look at these 12 followers of Jesus. On one level, it's just good to kind of have, you know, some basic Bible knowledge. You know, what are the names of these guys? Some of them tend to fall through the cracks. Uh, And then a little bit about them as people. But then on top of that, I think that this group that Jesus calls together, it actually tells us a lot about him and what it means to be a follower of him today. Because at, at its heart, the path of discipleship is one that Jesus calls All people from every walk of life to travel. And it means leaving everything behind in our pursuit of Jesus. So let's just jump right in, shall we? Uh, We should probably start with Simon Peter, since any time we read a list of the disciples, his name is always first. Uh, Simon, his Jewish name, probably more likely Simeon, after one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus gives Simon a nickname, Peter, the Greek version, or Cephas, the Aramaic version of the word rock. That's right, my my sixth graders, they always, they start to put that together when I tell them, you tell me that Peter was the rock? Yeah, Peter was the original, the rock. But however you want to identify this man of many names, he was a fisherman from the region of Galilee, ends up being kind of the headliner of this band of disciples oftentimes he tries to go solo. You might remember some of his singles that ended up flopping, falling asleep three times when Jesus asks him to pray for him, cutting off the high priest servant's ear, trying to correct Jesus about his upcoming death, and earning the scathing rebuke, get behind me, Satan. That's Peter. Next up, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It's not easy being the little brother of a guy with such a big personality, I'm sure. Uh, But you know what? I I think Andrew was maybe used to it. Before following Jesus, he was the disciple of John the Baptist. Peter and Andrew, uh, they're famously called to follow Jesus after a long, fruitless night of fishing. When Jesus tells them, hey, give it one more go. Head back out there. But instead of throwing your net on this side of the boat, Throw it on this side of the boat. They're like, fine, whatever. They do it, and they bring up a major haul of fish back onto shore, and Jesus tells them, hey, from now on, you'll be fishing for people. Next up, another pair of brothers. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. If I could give you three words to describe these guys, it would be passion, ambition, and fishing. Business associates of Peter and Andrew, they too were told that they would be fishing for people. Except um, that wasn't always their primary focus. Famously, James and John are uh, insulted by Samaritans as they pass through the region of Samaria. Yet instead of turning the other cheek, loving their enemies, they suggest to Jesus, can we just like rain down some fire on these guys, like, destroy this whole city. And in another instance, they pull Jesus aside. Jesus, look, we're strong, we're tough. When you set up your kingdom, can we be number two, number three in charge? I kind of like to imagine Jesus had, like, one of those moments in the office or Parks and Rec where he just, like, looks to the camera on the side shakes his head. It's being this bold and this brash that earns the sons of Zebedee, the nickname Sons of Thunder, from Jesus. Crossing over to a different sports metaphor, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're kind of like the, the big three of this squad. Um, y'all can decide who Chris Bosch is. But that's not to say that the rest of these disciples aren't contributors. They each have a role to play, even if it's not always the most clear. These next several guys, Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and James, the son of Alphaeus, to be perfectly honest, they just don't really get a lot of press. Philip, here. uh, He's probably not the same Philip that we read about in the book of Acts. Different guys, most likely. But we do read the story about him inviting his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus. Speaking of Nathaniel, there's a reasonable possibility that he and Bartholomew are the same person. It's not uncommon at all, uh, as we already saw with Peter, for people to have, or people to go by different names, given the different languages that were spoken. As well as you know, people had their own personal names and also family names. So Bartholomew, even if these two names belong to the same person, really the only thing we know about Bartholomew is that uh, he got a pretty sweet compliment from Jesus the first time they met. And then one time he went fishing with the other disciples. That's about it. Similarly, with James, the son of Alphaeus, we know almost nothing about this man. And then there's Thaddeus. Again, not much to say about this guy. But one interesting thing is that in Luke's list of disciples, Thaddeus is not mentioned. Instead, uh, Luke tells us about a guy named Judas, the son of James. James. I think for reasons that will become obvious in just a moment, Uh, if you had the opportunity to go by a name besides Judas, you would probably take it. Next two guys. Yeah, throw James, the son of Alphaeus, up there too. He's just, we know that he's a disciple. That's about it. Uh, Our next two guys, Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. These two guys right here. This is where things start to get a little hairy, maybe, in Jesus' group of disciples. Having these two in the same small group is like if the Chiefs drafted a Mizzou player and then later on they signed a Kansas Jayhawk. Two bitter rivals, but now they're forced to play on the same team. We read about Matthew's calling not too long ago in Matthew chapter 9. This guy is a tax collector, a defector, a traitor, to his own nation, who steals from his neighbors to fund the empire that's crushing them. Gotta imagine he was pretty popular among the rest of the group. And then you got Simon, who's identified as a zealot. And I think we've talked a little bit about zealots in the past. Uh, during Jesus' day, they were kind of like a, just a fledgling group, still trying to gain traction as a religious and political movement. But they're chief desire was to purge the land of Roman occupation, take back their nation for God by any means necessary. These guys, uh, they were hardcore Jewish nationalists, terrorists, violent revolutionaries. They're well known for having uh, assassins amongst them, simply known as the dagger men. They would sneak through crowds, stabbing as many Roman soldiers or politicians as they could Before they were brought down. At one point in the, at one point later in the Gospels, Jesus will send the disciples out two by two to go do some kingdom ministry, and I kind of like to imagine Jesus having a sense of humor, sending Matthew and Simon to like go together to do that. But they had some interesting conversations while they were traveling. Our uh, second to last disciple this morning is Thomas. He's got his own fun nickname in the Bible but probably not the one that you're thinking. Thomas has a twin brother, and so he gets called twin by everyone else in the group. That's what John's Gospel tells us. But no, Thomas gets a bad rep because he was at first skeptical to hear the news about Jesus' resurrection. He's since gone down in history as doubting Thomas, which is kind of a shame because eventually he ends up believing And not only that, but he exclaims one of the the greatest confessions in Scripture. He sees the risen Jesus, the holes in his hands, and says, My Lord and my God. And then last on the list is Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. We know that Judas was the treasurer for Jesus and the disciples, although his motives for having this position are not pure. Um, the Gospel of John tells us that Judas would take money off the top whenever the group would get donations and uh, take them for himself. Judas's love of money would reach its apex when he sells out Jesus for 30 silver coins. Not a small amount, but also definitely not a king's ransom. Different scholars debate exactly what that word Iscariot means. Uh, There are different theories, but the most popular view uh, is that the term Iscariot is related actually to another zealot-like group, specifically the dagger assassins. If that's true, then it would be a fitting surname for someone who would end up being the Messiah's backstabber. So there's our profile of the twelve. Now, Jesus' disciples weren't limited to these twelve. We read about lots of other disciples of Jesus. Uh, next week we'll read about Jesus sending this group out to do kingdom ministry, proclaiming the gospel. But there are other times when Jesus sends out 70 disciples or 72 disciples at once. And we also see in other passages that tell us about the many women who followed Jesus and financially supported his ministry. We read in Luke chapter 8 too, we see soon after he went on through cities and villages and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. But what are we to make of these twelve, who Matthew tells us about in our passage this morning? I think there's three things that we can... Observe and apply based on this list. Number one is that Jesus calls all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and struggles. Second, Jesus calls all kinds of people to leave all kinds of things behind in their pursuit of him. And then third and finally, Jesus calls all kinds of people to participate in his multifaceted mission. So first up, Jesus calls all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and struggles. Take a look back at that list of disciples. Think back on some of those profiles that we just went through together. Did you notice anything? None of these 12 that Jesus calls are famous, powerful, or even particularly morally upstanding. The women that we read about in Luke, they seem like they've got some money, But these guys, at least a third of them, are fishermen. At least one of them is a treacherous government employee. At least one or two of them are part of underground rebel groups. And then the rest are kind of under the radar guys. I guess at least two of the disciples, Matthew and Judas, were known thieves, so maybe they had some money. Those fishermen, they've got issues, right? I mean, Peter, he's definitely got some leadership potential, for sure. But most of the time, as we read through the Gospels, he's either got one foot in his mouth, or he's tripping over both of them. And then, based on our kind of current American cultural church moment, is there any doubt that the James and John of the Gospel narratives would have at least a couple podcasts made about them? Yeah, you know, God. This week, hey, thanks for joining us this week. Our guest interviews are with uh, Phil the Pharisee and Sam the Samaritan. Welcome, guys. Good to have you. Thanks, yeah. Phil, when did you start to notice some of the red flags uh, for this pair of brothers? Well, I'll tell you. There's this one time these guys came up to Jesus asking if they could be number two and number three in his kingdom. They even got their mom in on the plan to try and manipulate Jesus. Classic narcissistic personality disorder for sure. And then Sam the Samaritan jumps in. That's nothing. We asked these guys to leave our town one time. And you know what they do? Threaten to destroy our whole people group with fire from heaven. Major anger issues. Bullying, intimidation. Definitely some racial prejudice too. I think we've already spent enough time on Matthew and Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. They're the original odd couple, but not in like a funny way. Even a guy who Jesus knew would betray him is called to be his disciple. Church, what this tells us is that there's no one whose past has disqualified them from following Jesus. No one in here, no one that you've ever met or will meet is too lost, too far gone, too angry, sad or lonely, too rich, too poor, too much of a thief or a bully. To follow Jesus, experience his love, and be transformed by him. Jesus can and so often does walk into the lives of the people that we'd never expect, stops and invites them to follow him. Secondly, Jesus calls all kinds of people to leave all kinds of things behind and follow him. Okay, so we've established that Jesus is called a sketchy group of disciples, to say the least. And on one hand, that's amazing, because it demonstrates the depths from which Jesus can save us. And yet, the call towards Jesus is always a call away from our sin. That's what the Bible means when it uses the word repentance. So yeah, Jesus calls James the power-hungry son of thunder. And you know how that goes? James is so radically gripped by the grace of Jesus that when his heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, he serves and he builds up the church in a way that catches the eye of King Herod. The disciple who wanted to be Jesus' crown prince is then executed with the sword by the king of Judea. He goes down in history as James the Great. And sure, Jesus calls John. The Jewish supremacists to follow him. You know how that goes? John is so radically gripped by the grace of Jesus, you're going to notice a pattern. He's so radically gripped by the grace of Jesus that when his heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, he serves and builds up the church in a way that catches the eye of the Roman Empire. And this would be destroyer of the Samaritans lives out his day in exile on a desert island, get this, writing letters of gospel encouragement and hope to Gentile churches scattered throughout the region of modern-day Turkey. Let's drill down a bit deeper. This next part might be a little more difficult for some of us. With James and John, yeah, they, they have these sinful attitudes that they need to leave behind and follow Jesus to have their minds be renewed. There are some attitudes and desires that well, we may find ourselves doing battle against them for the rest of our lives. See, even in the gospel letters of Paul, Peter has struggles with relating to his Gentile brothers. He doesn't always get it, or if he does, he resists it even sometimes. But what about these guys, Matthew and Simon? They're primarily identified in this passage by their careers. Ideology and allegiance. Matthew, the tax collector. Simon, the zealot. Now certainly, there are definitely heart issues that led both of these men into the roles they were identified with. We have to know that. No one just wakes up and decides to become a Roman tax collector or a Jewish zealot. But what does it look like for Jesus to call a tax collector or a zealot? We saw just a few weeks ago, like I said earlier, in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus makes a call to Matthew. Let's look at it again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew leaves his tax booth behind. We don't have an account of Jesus calling Simon. But maybe it would have gone something like this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Simon being radicalized by the zealots. And he said to him, Simon, follow me. And he dropped his dagger and followed Jesus. Church, there will be sins in our hearts that we struggle to do battle with every day for the rest of our lives, like James and John. And other times, there are moments where we realize the entire direction of our life and identity is diametrically opposed to the way of Jesus. We have to leave something big behind, right then and there, or right here and now. You simply can't be a Christian tax collector or a Christian zealot. It's an oxymoron. If a restaurant server or an electrician or whatever job you work, uh, became a disciple of Jesus, we would do well to teach them and train them how to incorporate the grace and the loving kindness and the commands of Jesus into their work. Right? Because there are Christian ways to do those jobs. Treating customers with respect, even when they're rude. Building or repairing something that helps others accomplish their goals. Or experience a better quality of life. But, hear me out. What if a pimp becomes a Christian? Will we send him back into the streets to be a Christian pimp? Of course not. Because there is no way to Christianly exploit women and facilitate sexual immorality. What if a hitman became a Christian? Do we send him back to work with a shiny new rifle that had a cross engraved into it? No! Because there's not a Christian way to be violent and kill people. What if a payday lender becomes a Christian? Should we send her back to work the next day like everything is the same? We couldn't, because there's not a Christian way to trap your neighbors in cycles of debt and poverty. Some things in this world are able to be Christianized. There are some forms of work that we can do to the glory of God. Most of them, probably. And then other things just have to be forsaken entirely. I have a feeling there might not be any pimps and hitmen and payday lenders here this morning. If there are, I'm going to be over here on the side stage after the gathering. Love to talk to you. So let me hit a little bit closer to home. In our culture, local, national, the biggest idol that most of us are tempted to worship is our politics and our government. If the Gospels were written today and Jesus called his disciples from mid-Missouri, would it read like this? And he called to himself, Robbie the Republican, Donna the Democrat, Sarah the Socialist, Larry the Libertarian, who would betray him? (laughs) I really struggled to to think about which uh, person I was going to put last on the list. (laughs) Now, what I'm not here to say... Do not hear me say this, is that there's only one way for a Christian to vote. You're not ever going to hear me say that, I don't think. If a Christian chooses to vote, then they have to reckon with how their vote fits into their life of following Jesus. That's probably an ongoing conversation that we can have as a community of faith. What I think we need to see here, though, based on our passage, is that being a disciple of Jesus must supplant in a foundational way any other political identity. Because if I become known in the city of Columbia as Aaron the Anarchist or something like that, then it means I'm not known as Aaron the Follower of Jesus. And if my primary identity is in my political theology, my political ideology that I'm going to sacrifice the way of Jesus when those two things bump up against one another. Jesus calls all kinds of folks from all walks of life to follow him. And that path of discipleship means turning away from all other things that would lead us away from Jesus. Finally, Jesus calls all kinds of people to participate in his multifaceted mission. Let's circle back to uh, verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. These guys are bestowed with a dual job title and a dual job description. Let's read it. He called to them, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles were the ones that we read. So first, their dual job title Jesus calls his disciples to him. Matthew says that the names of the apostles were the guys that we read. What's it mean to be a disciple, and what's it mean to be an apostle? Great questions. Glad you asked. Because while both of these titles apply to this group of 12, they're not synonymous. We often use them interchangeably, but they're not synonymous. A disciple, quite simply, is a learner or an apprentice. A disciple is someone who learns from a teacher in order to do or become what the teacher is or does. We talk a lot about this at Caris. Last year, Pastor Kevin did a short sermon series where we went through our different Caris identities and rhythms. Who are we as a church? What do we do as a church? And the first rhythm and identity that we talked about was that we are learners who listen we're disciples. We're learners who listen. We listen to God as we learn from His Word daily and weekly. We learn about one another as we listen to them, learn from who they are as our brothers and sisters. We're made to be disciples, learners who listen, people who are with Jesus before we're made to do anything for Jesus. And then, second, job title. These guys are apostles. What's an apostle? Well, most literally, it means sent out ones. Someone who's been sent out. So Jesus calls twelve disciples, sends them out. We'll read about that next week. Making them his first apostles. In a very real sense, I think we can use this basic definition of an apostle and think about the way it relates to like modern day church planners, or missionaries. In a, in a real literal sense, you know, Carus sent out church-planning families like the Worleys and the Glossons to do a, a kind of apostolic gospel ministry. And we've sent out missionary families like the Groves and the Bales and so many others to do a kind of apostolic gospel ministry. You can think of these as like lowercase a apostles, kind of how I like to think about Just general. Anyone who's been sent. Someone who's been commissioned to take the gospel somewhere. Now, I should clarify something here as well. As the story of Scripture unfolds, we see this word apostle take on some more meaning as well. Beyond its kind of base level meaning of sent out ones, we see a unique application of this word for a select group of sent ones. What I kind of think about is like, Apostles with the capital A, proper noun. Those are the disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus in bodily form and received a verbal commission directly from him. These are guys like the 12, minus Judas, that we read about in our passage today. Or a guy like Paul. The people who were originally sent as eyewitnesses and had the unique responsibility of uh, writing Scripture helping found the entire church. That kind of apostolic ministry, we don't see that happening anymore today. We're not sending the glossons or the groves out to like write new books of the Bible. Not that kind of apostle. So this multifaceted mission, it includes a dual job title and also a dual job description. Sandwiched between disciples and apostles is the description And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Do you notice anything there? Authority over evil spirits and healing people, which is pretty much a summary of the last two chapters of Matthew and everything that Jesus has been doing. Now, I don't want to get too much farther into what this mission is going to entail, because that's... Basically, these two ver- this verse right here is extrapolated into next week's passage. But I do want to emphasize one more thing about the apostles' ministry. Jesus vests these men with authority to go and do the things that he had been doing. At the heart of being an apostle, a sent one, is that you fully represent the one who sent you. In Jesus' day... If I send someone out on my behalf to run an errand, when they show up to pick up my pizza for me, it's like they're me. Yeah. If someone sent you formally as their apostle representative, then insofar as you were acting in accordance with the mission you'd been given, you carried the same weight and authority as the one who sent you. I can give someone my card to go pick up my pizza for me, but if they like, Go on a little shopping spree afterwards, like that's not approved. Like, you're not acting with the mission that I've given you. This language we see here is it's just a preview of Jesus' final commissioning to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. At the, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we read the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See that same kind of language link there with Jesus bestowing authority, or based on Jesus' authority, what these apostles are to do. It seems like a big job, because it is. But it's not one that the apostles haven't been prepared for. The way Jesus makes and sends out disciples, does four things. He demonstrates His mission to them. He teaches His mission to them. He trains them for His mission. And then He commissions them to go fulfill His mission. Church, let me encourage you to apply this passage by seeing yourself in each of those four stages of discipleship who are you being discipled by who is showing you who are you watching live out jesus's mission at the very kind of base level is this living in community seeing how older more mature followers of jesus are fulfilling his mission and learning from them Are you in God's word and in gospel community being taught and also encouraged in Jesus' mission? Are you in a relationship with older, more mature believers who can bring you along with them when they live on mission? That hands-on training. Disciples have been watching Jesus, and Jesus instructs them, and then they get to participate a little bit. Next week, they're going to get a practice run at this thing. Finally, have you found ways in your own life to live on mission and fulfill Jesus' commands in the world that he's placed you? Let me close this morning with this. It's been summer break for a while, so if you're new to Carus this summer, you might not know this. Uh, but during the school year, I teach a couple sixth grade classes at Christian Fellowship School, Bible classes. Um, and maybe you can relate to this. We've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen Jesus heal all kinds of people from all kinds of things. Blindness, deafness, and muteness. Healing from bleeding disorders, paralysis. Jesus casting demons out of people. Jesus raises a girl from the dead. And he calms a storm as his disciples sail across the sea. Maybe you find yourself asking the same question that my sixth graders ask. Why don't we see miracles like that anymore? Why doesn't that stuff happen where I'm able to see it? And here's what I tell them. Yeah, you know, I've never seen a paralyzed person get up and walk. I've never seen a dead person come back to life. We look at Matthew 8 and 9, and the miracles are obvious because they defy kind of the physical realities of our world. But what about the subtle miracle that's in our passage today? What about the fact that Jesus calls 12 diverse and sinful dudes to follow him around for three years? There's a miracle there, and it's a miracle that we have experienced as well. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes this, He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, he who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Church, the Bible tells us that only Jesus' Holy Spirit is able to bring together in unity around himself, people who were once enemies. People who, in our broader cultural landscape, have no ability to get along. Who look at each other with suspicion and hostility, primarily. But when we look at the disciples, we see that a, the, we see a miracle that the bumbling, would-be leader, Peter is in the same group as power-hungry James and John. That a tax collector and a zealot spend three years following the same guy around Galilee and Judea without killing each other. And that the doubter and the betrayer cannot slow down Jesus' mission. It's the same miracle that we experience right here and now in this room. Healings are great. But Paul is telling us that the greatest miracle Jesus does in the lives of his people is actually knocking down that dividing wall of hostility, is killing the hostility between people. When male and female Christians are able to worship side by side without rivalry, when rich and poor Christians can serve together, not in the spirit of jealousy or pity, but in mutual encouragement and support, when Christians from different racial or generational backgrounds can live together together live in community with one, another, with one another without judgment, when Christians with different political philosophies are bound together as brothers and sisters by the blood of Jesus. That is a miracle. That is the miracle of the church and a chief implication of the gospel. Carus, when Jesus gave his own life on the cross, he paid for the sins of his people. When he rose from the grave, he unleashed new creation life into our world. And when he sent his spirit, his people were brought together in unity. Church, that's the gospel message that guides our gospel mission. Pray with me. Dear Father, we praise you. We honor you this morning. We thank you for your word to us. that We can listen and learn from you. God, help us to see ourselves in this passage uh, where we ought to. None of us here this morning have arrived. Uh, None of us have it all figured out. May these verses just remind us that you call us always in spite of our sinfulness, not because of our, our talents or our strengths. God, there are ways where we live in conflict with following your son. In those areas, we need convicting. Would we even now be sensing your spirit in our hearts now? Lord, as we continue to worship you this morning, Would you give us unity around your table? Please give us a deeper sense of unity with you and with our brothers and sisters by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all of this.